for those who know every line, and for those finding Star Wars for the very first time, welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Anna. And today we are doing Andor Season 1, Episode 2. That would be me. That would be me. That's actually, that's not, that's not how he says it. He's, he's chagrined. He's like, that would be me. He's chagrined and sturdy, but we'll get into it. Before we do, we have two announcements to make. One is we are standing in support of the WGA SAG After Strike, still ongoing for nigh on five months, where we just want to really ask our listeners to skip the rewatch, avoid the movies, stand with your actors and writers, and just everyone who's out there trying to get a fair shake for fair work. Yeah, it helps a lot if you just don't watch things on platforms that are being stricken against. So we're watching because we want to bring you wonderful content on Growing Up Skywalker, but we hope that we always give you a detailed enough plot summary that you don't actually have to go to that platform and watch it yourself. And that just helps writers and creators to have a little bit more leverage in their strike. What's the other announcement? Okay, the other announcement is that apparently couples who podcast together stay together because Sam and I are now engaged. Hey! We actually started Growing Up Skywalker when we had been dating for, what, three months? That cannot be correct. We started thinking about it three or four months in. Well... Dear listener, may or may not recall, early on in the podcast, I explained what it was all about, which is I really wanted Anna to watch The Clone Wars, but she does nothing by half measures. And so she said, do you want to do a podcast about being a sober person dating and someone in recovery or Star Wars? Or I, That's what I posed to her. And she said, of course, Star Wars, which is not the answer I expected. <laughs> But this is the way we've gotten to watch Star Wars, and we've been on this journey for, wow, over two years. So most of our relationship. Mm -hmm. We started dating on August 28th of 2020, deep in the pandemic. Deep, deep dark days. And here we are three years later, and we're grateful for all of you who've been along on this journey with us. And we're excited to get married. Yeah. Well, that's that's the next thing to build up for for a while. Got to save, uh, save some more jewelry money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, getting hitched aside, what happens in Andor Season 1, Episode 2? Well, we once again are struck with the A plot, B plot, and C plot. So we're going to stick with the <laughs> Cassian in the now plot and then circle back. The okay. Cassian in the now plot on Ferrix, the word has gotten out. There's a police APB out for a dark Kunari male. And this is everywhere. Bix is seeing it on her screen and she shuts it down and Space Tim comes by. He's like, what was she looking at? But Cassian coming home to his mom, Marva, she's sitting there next to B and B has to play the all points bulletin that Cassian is being looked for. It is revealed that Cassian has always said he's from Fest. His birth certificate says he's from Fest. 
it's all a lie. He's actually from Canary. Space Tim is super sus. And also, Cassian hasn't been super precise about who he's told that he's from Kunari, and he might have told these agents or he might have told the proprietress of the bar last night. Well, so Marva kind of reads out the list of all the women that he slept with and she's like, which one did you tell? And was it all of them? And I'm like, listen, Marva, there's a thing with your adult children that is called boundaries, okay? Mm -hmm. So anyway, Cassian tracks down Bix because she is, in fact, going to set up a call with him. They meet at an extremely sketchy bar, and it is revealed that in the morning, the buyer for this NS9 Star Path unit will be arriving. Yeah, this is the same day as the day that we started, actually. Oh, yeah. Very little time has occurred. And in fact, the first three episodes of Andor were released on the same day to our universe. So we are just watching the very middle part of what works out to be like a 90-minute movie. Wow. Importantly, as Bix and Cassian are at this space tavern, Space Tim comes by. Freaking Space Tim comes by, sees them chatting, gets super jealous, and decides to turn Cassian into the mall cops. So he phones in, and that is enough information for the B-plot to start here, Cyril Karn is sitting there with his team of mall cops watching over and they get a message. They send something forward. They get the call. They're, they're collating information. And they're like, this is who this person is supposed to be maybe. And we see Cassian's face. But then we see Cyril turn and there is the madam from the brothel ready to identify him. So... Cyril gets together the mall copyist of mall cops, <laughs> Linus Mosk. Linus Mosk. Who is horrible. Of course his name is Linus. <laughs> and Linus proceeds to tut-tut cheerio in like a Scottish accent that he is just the copyist cop who's ever like abused a mall goer. And he's ready for Cyril to join him as they go to Ferrix to arrest Cassian Andor. Yeah, they grab 12 guys mm-hmm. in addition to the two of them and Sergeant Musk or whatever. Yeah. Musk, Musk, I don't know. Linus here thinks that Karn is really on the right track because there's rebellion fomenting across the galaxy. And so they're really going to make a difference by hunting down this one random interloper mall cops are the first line of the emperor's security (laughs) it's it's actually horrifying it would be sad if it weren't so deeply annoying yeah they're they're the worst so they're flying they're in flight they're flying along mosque gives a speech to the 12 troops of like here's the situation on the ground here's what's up and then he turns it over to cyril to give the worst speech anyone has ever given to anyone about anything ever Listener, I'm 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 opening my heart to you. I ran for class president of my <laughs> high school class and I gave an absolutely terrible speech and oh. I received a negligible number of joke votes out of the 400 people in my graduation class. Oh, Sam, that's devastating. And it was a two-way race. And um my speech was 
10 orders of magnitude better than Cyril Karn's speech. <laughs> Honestly, it speaks to amazing acting how bad this speech was. I will raise you your terrible class speech. I ran for something dumb like parliamentarian in elementary school, and I'm pretty what sure kind I of rapped. Elementary school has a I, parliament. I wrapped. No. I wrapped no. my speech. And it was so much worse than what you're imagining, Sam. And this is like 2003, too. I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes haunted by the fact that I wrapped that speech and I lost. So, speaking of things <laughs> that are haunting, we've, we've actually reached sort of the end of the A plot and the B plot because this is a short episode that is the middle. But it turns out there's a C plot and a D plot. Mm. The C plot is young Casa, who is wandering along following the rest of his Lord of the Flies friends. They walk past a huge mining strip mine, just like an entire zip code has been mined out. And then they make their way to the crashed ship. The leader is walking forward and she's poking bad guys with her stick. They're not bad. They're just dead and like very sickly yellow and in spacesuits. She walks past one. She goes and pokes the other. And the one she walked past stands up shoots her in the back, and then proceeds to die to a hail of blow darts from like 60 kids. Yeah, the kiddos go wild. The kids are tearing at their hair. They're having a terrible time because their leader just died. So they pick up her body and take it away. But Cassian stays and looks angrily at the ship. He clenches his fist. And finally, the (laughs) D-plot. Enter Luthen. Who's Luthen? Luthen rolls up to Ferrix in a very fancy ship, parks way outside of town, and walks three clicks, which is, you know, space, whatever, Star Wars distance. But if it's a kilometer, then three kilometers to the port. And on the way, he has to board a space bus and is accosted by a random space dude and has a good cover for how much he paid for parking. That is generally the end of the episode, though. Luthen is blonde and walking stick and mysterious. Well, so it's a very weird kind of classist scene where mm. Luthen, question mark, again, no again. Names. We still don't know Cyril's name. I mean, the Andor screenwriters are so adamantly opposed to giving us names. Okay, so <laughs> Luthen, question mark, is headed in on some kind of space ferry, and there's an extended scene with this salvager guy mm-hmm. who is dunking on Ferrix and talking mad shiz about how terrible Ferrix is and it never changes. But if you can't find it on Ferrix, you can't find it anywhere. And then there's this fascinating way that the episode ends where this guy is talking shiz about Ferrix. And then the camera pans down to Cassian hustling through a salvage yard on the way to the sale. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like you get this perspective of someone who is using Ferrix for what it's good for. And then you pan down to the people who are actually trying to eke out a living on the planet. Yep. And that's the whole episode. And that's the whole episode. So there's not actually much more beyond that. We're very much still in the setup for the first arc of Andor here. Yeah, this was a funny one. We watched this last night after, 
I got engaged. <laughs> so I wasn't necessarily doing the closest watch of my growing up Skywalker career, but I wasn't paying attention to how far into the episode we were. And so I was thinking like, man, this episode is really taking a long time to ramp up. And then it ended. Mm-hmm. And that was the episode. So then we thought maybe we should watch ahead and do a double header, just ad hoc. But the next episode is actually the end of this three-part arc before things move along nicely and it's Ooh. all action. Ooh. So that is not what's going to happen. We'll join you next week with a lot of action. But right now we're still in the very methodical, very slow setup for who Andor is, what he's up to, and what his relationship with all these people is yeah i like that you use the word methodical because mm-hmm. this tv show feels like it's being pieced together kind of chain link by chain link which is interesting as a viewer it's also leaving me with a lot of questions because it feels so deliberate every time i see a detail i glom onto the detail and i'm like wait is that going to be important later what do i need to know about that so i keep coming up against a million questions per episode because everything feels important there are such beautiful details in this show one of them that i really appreciate is brassos coming out of the brick factory or whatever he does for whatever a living it's does. very very mysterious deeply wholesome very mysterious and there's a wall of gloves and every single pair of gloves and these are like big gauntlets big work gauntlets and every single pair is unique and that is the end of your shift as you go and you put your gloves up It's a little bit like punching in your time card and punching Mm -hmm. it out because every pair of gauntlets has their own home. Yeah, and everyone is like the same. And that's like a really cool, oh gosh, it it makes this factory life, it makes this post-industrial life that the people of Ferrix are living seem very lived in, very traditional, very idiosyncratic in a way that makes it homey. And It's really cool how you can take just a handful of details like that. The guy who rings in the day, who we get to see like three (laughs) times, who's like delightful, uh, is just like wailing on this big, huge bell with hammers like a drummer. And he's like screaming, which no one can hear because the sound of the bells is permeating through all of town. That is a very unique thing that is not the way like bells work anywhere else and so having it be the space version of it makes it very much seem like ferrix has an incredibly long deep and rich history in a way that isn't always true in a science fiction or fantasy setting sometimes you're just like oh it's fantasy france or it's space puerto rico and this is (laughs) ferrix and it is deeply different Yeah, what I love about that guy, StarWars.com calls him a time wrangler. Jesus. So so the time wrangler marks the beginning of the end of the workday. And what I loved about those little cutscenes, and he showed up a lot in this episode, Mm -hmm. is that he has this kind of yoga ritual that he does to get into time wrangling zone in his head. Mm -hmm. He's doing this rhythmic breathing and he's getting his form right. I'm I'm like wingspanning my arms out to Mm -hmm. show what he's doing. And it does make this show feel lived in. And like we really did drop into Ferrix and Ferrix 
has been going for a long time. And Ferrix does not stop for anybody. Mm-hmm. And we are just peeking in on a random day on this planet. And that's fun because the Clone Wars has given us probably the richest look into what life is like in Star Wars. But it's not lived in because it's animated. But Ferrix is lived in. A few of the places in the Clone Wars are lived in. Uh, Cut Queen's farm is mm. lived in. It's got a nice history. There's stories that are there. The planet of um, Bounty Hunters, the Seven Samurai episode, that has a nice lived-in feel. I think the rural parts of it have that as well. But much of it doesn't. And I agree with you that even the most like unique parts of things don't have quite as much uniqueness as Ferex. And what's so interesting about that particularly is that they definitely did it on a budget. There's not a lot of aliens. Basically, any scene with a big enough crowd has like three aliens and occasionally they'll get like some weird little alien who's telling backstory in some gibbering space language. And that's it. Other than that, it could be just a different country on Earth. And that makes it all the more impressive that it is uniquely alien. And that this show looks so expensive, too. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, it, like, you know, Ferrix is a set, which is really cool. That's a, that's just a really cool thing to have done. And this was filmed on a lot of different locations, which I think is also cool. I'm glad we're talking about this theme in particular, because this was one of my big takeaways from episode two, is that Andor has a lot of domestic, everyday stuff in it. Mm -hmm. We get in this episode alone, we get a Star Wars perspective on sex, Mm. on relationships, on what people's houses are like, on their money problems, on what it's like for them to either have a work schedule that they follow or people like Cassian who are counter to the work schedule. Yeah. We get, I mean, this is just not stuff that we dealt with when we were hanging out with Jedi and senators. No, this is the, so the scene between Bix and Space Tim where, so after he gets drunk and calls in Cassian and I mean, so is he calling in saying there's a canary male and he actually is just wanting to frame Cassian Ooh. or because he doesn't know that Cassian's from canary. Maybe he does. Maybe he does. Don't think he does, but he gets really drunk. He calls the cops and then he's sitting there in his little apartment alone. Yeah. And he's like stressing out And Bix shows up and she's drunk and she's like, hey, that invitation for earlier, you want to fool around? She like booty calls him. And it's interesting because he is experiencing guilt. Mm. He's experiencing, did I just ruin someone's life for nothing? Especially after he's like, oh, hey, I thought I saw Bix and Cassian at the bar and then she's here with me. Right. He's got two layers of guilt. He's got the guilt where either he turned in someone innocent Mm -hmm. who's now going to get framed for murder or he turned in 
someone who's not innocent, but who was ostensibly a friend to his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So that's one layer. And then the other layer is that he thought Bix was cheating on him with her old flame. And then she comes by and she's innocent. So now he's been following her around and being sketchy and weird and invading her privacy. So he is now confronting the fact that he's the worst, which... We know. <laughs> we know, Space Tim, you're the worst. There are no kudos for Space Tim on this podcast. But. Well, to, to dogpile on Space Tim here. <laughs> yeah, please. So he like, they work together and he goes up behind the counter and he sees that Bix is like reading a message. And he she like is like, oh, no, I don't. I'm not really ready for dinner tonight. And she like slams close the message and then runs an errand. He goes and he's like, I'm going to open this message. I'm going to see what she's up to. And it's literally wanted mail like that went to every computer everywhere. This was not proprietary information, my friend. But he took it as such. He's like, oh, she must have closed it really rapidly because she knows something I don't. And it's mm. like and she's like, no, this is just boring. Like. So what I like about the Space Tim and Bix dynamic. I just love Space Tim. That's, <laughs> yeah, I know. That's his name now. That's his name this now. is canon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so their relationship is like new, new. And we mm-hmm. haven't really ever seen a normal relationship Still in haven't. Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, I think this is about as normal as we're gonna get. Oh, it seems really bad to me. No. No, I'm not saying I'm not condoning this relationship. I do not think it is healthy, right? Mm-hmm. But this is a pretty normal work thing turned into a booty call thing, turned into a now we have communication problems thing. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of average. Yeah, it's relatable. It's, I would not say that this is relatable. This type of thing where. Space Tim obviously wants a full-time girlfriend and Bix is like, you're a full-time Space Tim and I can't have that in my life. I can have, I can handle Space Tim one night a week. That's that's literally what they said. He's like, hey, do you want to have dinner? And she's like, I thought we agreed one night a week. We said Tuesday. It, yeah. Is it Tuesday, Space Tim? And it is not. It is not Tuesday, Space Tim. Start the week now. He like really wants to escalate this relationship. And Bix has got other things to worry about because she's running a major smuggling deal right now. Yeah, there is that. She's a working lady. She's Mm -hmm. a career gal. But also, I like that Star Wars is showing us booty calls. First time, honestly. There were occasional booty calls in the Clone Wars in Padme's gorgeous, sweeping senatorial apartment. Yeah, that, that deserves like a nicer name. That's like a – what would you call a, a dignified booty call? Uh, it's, uh, a, it's a derriere <laughs> – it's a designer derriere appointment. It's a derriere dial. There we go. <laughs> That's a butt dial. Okay, okay, let me back fin- on track. <laughs> let me finish my thought. So we have seen derriere dials mm-hmm. in the upper echelons of Coruscant, but we've never seen a situation ship dropping by their situation ship's bachelor pad. And I just like getting these really intimate inner looks into people's houses in Star Wars, right? Like Space Tim's house reminds me of Anakin and Shmi's 
situation on Tatooine. Mm -hmm. There's these low ceilings and all of these earth tones and nothing is curated. And Bix just casually drops her jacket on the back of the chair and it feels almost cozy. Mm -hmm. I like that that's always the vibe that people are going for. Um, compared to a previous house that you really enjoyed, which was Rush Clovis's chalet. Oh, man, that place was gorgeous. And that's like because he had space. With and the stuff. conversation pit. Yeah. It was very 70s. And I will say that Marva's house here on Ferrix mm-hmm. is also very 70s, but it's like that earthy boho kind of 70s whereas rush clovis had the the 70s are turning into the 80s more is more greed Mm -hmm. is good but marva has this really nice one level cool star wars house with a childhood bedroom for for cassian where all of his stuff is including his blow dart that he took to well he had on canary so Interesting back and forth there. Uh, what did you think of Marva? Marva's a sharp old lady. Mm-hmm. Marva does not understand boundaries. And I guess I'm I'm curious because now we're getting a little bit more of the Canari plot, right? Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this tribe of youths tromping around on Canari. And where was Marva during all that? Great question. She's his mom. Mm-hmm. There are no moms to be found on Canary at this moment in time. That is correct. So what's the deal? We will find out. <sighs> I know, I know, uh. I know. I also, in defense of Marva's boundary crossing, all points Bolton comes out for your kid and then they're out at night. Like it really doesn't matter how old they are. I think I feel like if the cops are looking for your kid, you should be able to go into their bedroom to look for clues. Although Marva is also all about like, hey, whatever Cassian is up to, sticking it to the man, that's my jam too. <laughs> this is fine. Like we've covered for it. We've done all the paperwork. We've made sure because also when Cassian from Fest gets called up by the mall cops, they're like, oh, he's got a rap sheet. Destruction of Imperial property. like Assaulting an Imperial officer. Mm-hmm. And so, now suspected murder. Suspected murder. So he is considered armed and dangerous because he has a rap sheet. And so that is who Marva raised. Now, did she raise him to be against the Empire? Or did she raise him to think for himself? Or has he always been... Grouchy, what's his deal? I don't know. We get so little from Marva Mm -hmm. in this episode. I feel like you primed me to really love Marva. You were like, Marva's so cool. Mm -hmm. And this episode, I'm not sure that we saw how cool she is yet. Well, unfortunately, in this episode, we didn't see much of anything. We didn't. We we, we mostly saw the inside of Space Tim's house. And we got to meet Linus Mosk. Freaking Linus Mosk. Who is hilarious. I want to talk about him a little bit because I am intrigued. Mm -hmm. For lack of a better word, I'm intrigued. I want to pick apart this Mosk character a little bit. So Karn kind of meets his match in this guy. We meet Karn and Karn is so gung-ho about his deeply not cool job as deputy inspector of the mall cops. 
We get their name. They're the corporate tactical forces. Oh, that's who Mosk runs, which is the armed mall cops. Oh, the armed mall cops. Yeah. Okay, so the Paul Blart plus pistols. Mm, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. So Karn meets this guy. Mosk is deeply, deeply excited about Karn's whole vibe, right? Because he's like, ah, yes, another zealous mall cop. <laughs> These are my people. And he has this really interesting line about how he is seeing rebellion fomenting across the galaxy, which mm-hmm. because we're watching this in BBY5, yep. we know he might be talking about the Spectres. He very well might be. Which is awesome. But it's weird because we've never, and correct me if I'm wrong here, we've never really seen anyone who was fanatical about the Empire. We've met a lot of people who are there for a paycheck. Mm -hmm. And we've met people like Tarkin who are there to advance their careers and gain power and influence, but who doesn't necessarily seem so thrilled about the Empire in particular, just about amassing personal power. So this is kind of the first person we're seeing who is like, yeah, I love working for the Empire. What about, what's his name, the truck driver in Kenobi? That guy was excited to be of use to the Empire, mm-hmm. which is a similar vibe, but he didn't stop being a truck driver and go work for the Empire. That's true. But all those stormtroopers did. Yeah, but we've seen kind of the stormtrooper vibe. They come in when they're 13 And a lot of them have kind of unfortunate circumstances. And so they're also sort of there for a paycheck. Mm -hmm. But this guy, Mosk, really seems to be there because he believes in what the Empire is doing. So what did the Empire do to win this guy's loyalty? What they did was they let him brutalize people. And so that's like what he's talking about in his speech to his troops, which he does before Cyril's speech. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is hard to follow. Mosk's speech is actually good. It's yeah, got, he gets the chuckles. It's got jokes. It's to the point. It's got good coverage. It's mean. And it's mean. And it's very much us versus them. And also the the stinger line was, and remind the people that if they have any complaints, they can bring it up at the monthly complaints meeting. And everyone laughs at that because mm-hmm. obviously nothing's going to come of that. He likes beating people up. He likes oh. beating people up for and declining to beat people up for bribes in the form of sex, money, favors, what have you. He is the absolute epitome of the type of corrupt cop when cops are allowed to run roughshod over people. This wow. is this is police brutality in a can. So you think this guy is emblematic of, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, emblematic of all the things that are the wrong reasons for someone to want to be a cop. Absolutely. He derives deep enjoyment and justification about putting pain into people. That is so unsettling because he seems like such a, such an ineffective character. Not ineffective, like he's not good at his job. Clearly Mm -hmm. he's very good at his job, but he's so thrilled about kind of a 
dumb job that you don't want to take him seriously as a character. Mm -hmm. But now I know that he is an armed cop who likes hurting people. So I have to take him seriously, even though he's a doofus. Yeah. I mean, that's his whole jam. And that's how he gets Cyril on board with him is he's got this same sort of zealotry of us versus them. This othering of the people of Ferrix is something he's all about. Now that I think about it, I think Mosk is actually a bit of a parallel with the cop in the first episode. Not the one who Cassian accidentally kills first, but the second guy who begs for his mercy. Yes, yes. That guy is also a doofus. And the brothel madam makes fun of him behind his back for for being a sentry guard and for being so arrogant about his dumb job, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And when Cassian turns the tables on him and holds his blaster at this guy, he folds like a piece of wet tissue paper. Yep. But when he's holding the blaster, he has so much power. Yep. So holding weapons gives doofuses unearned power over the lives of people. Yep. I think that's what Andor is saying about cops. About the mall cop arc, yeah. Wow. That's edgy. It's relevant. It's It's, deeply relevant. It's timely. When this came out in September of 2021, extremely timely. It's about as fast as you could make something on the heels of a global awakening with regards to police brutality that had a lot of head of steam to build before it boiled over in 2000. Wow. I think what is sticking out to me is that this comparison really has teeth. Mm, Yes. Star Wars that we have watched so far, and I'm thinking specifically about the Clone Wars especially, but a little bit about Kenobi too. When it takes on social issues, it doesn't always do it in a way where you know what the stance is. Mm -hmm. But the stance on police brutality in Andor is very clear and very definitive. There's really no mistaking what they're saying. Yeah. Which is brave. It is brave. And also, I think in the larger meta narrative of what Star Wars is always talking about when it's talking about politics, because Star Wars is deeply political and has been from the get go, Star Wars has always been anti fascism. Yeah. And getting to this level. At this point of the storytelling, because in 5 BBY, we are exactly five years before the events of A New Hope, the first movie that came out. And at that point, obviously, people were radicalized enough to put their lives on the line to form a rebellion against an empire. But in the intervening years, in the rise of the empire, the whole imperial era has been marked by rising fascism. And that fascism comes at the point of doofuses with guns. Mm. And so one can draw the parallels that is it a doofus with a gun who makes fascism or is fascism just allow doofuses with guns to propagate or is that one of the tools that fascism uses? Fascism is built on the backs of doofuses with guns, but it needs a larger structure in order to weaponize them appropriately and effectively against the masses. Let's bookmark that thought. First, I want to I want to take one more step and then bookmark it. Okay, okay. Because Cyril is not a doofus with a gun. He seems like a smart guy who is actually a little bit concerned about how fanatical Mosk is. 
and how prepared Mosk is to just take this issue and run with it. I think he's scared because he is talking a big game and Mosk has like a necklace made out of ears or something for doing it. Yeah, Mosk Mosk has a bunch of people's wedding rings. So like what Cyril is doing is like, oh, I've been practicing this. This is the thing I want to do. And this is someone who's actually doing it. Am I actually willing to go all the way? And that's the decision Cyril has to make. But Cyril is also a deputy inspector. He's kind of the next level up in this. He has the education to be solving these types of problems. He doesn't have to go to the field if he doesn't want to. But he wants to because he wants to feel that fanaticism. Wow. Did you catch that look right in the scene when Karn's Muppets, his lackeys, mm-hmm. have positively identified Cassie and Andor, and they bring in the madam mm-hmm. to confirm that that's the guy that she was talking to at the bar? That Did you catch that lingering look between Karn and the madam? No. Well, it wasn't a look between them, but Karn gave this really unsettled look at the madam and then really quickly turned his focus back to Cassian's picture. Hmm. And it just reminded me of that thing you said about the chief inspector last episode, how all of the higher-ups are very familiar with the brothel's services. And you think Cyril's been availing himself of that? I think Cyril has tried. Oh! But he kind of seems like... The the look had enough tension in it where he seemed really embarrassed to see the madam. Perhaps Cyril finds himself in a position where he's um, embarrassed of being in the same room as a madam oh. because he is an upstanding citizen. He is the definition of an upstanding citizen. If he was any more upstanding, he'd be bent over backwards. So he is this caricature of himself. He is like this deeply oppressed boy child who just is incapable of handling the concept of sex. So that's interesting. I will counter it with my perception mm-hmm. as a woman. Mm. My perception was that Karn was embarrassed to see the madam because he went into the brothel to avail himself of their services mm-hmm. and perhaps did not perform in a way <sighs> that he was proud of. Jeez. And he knows that girls talk. Mm-hmm. And so when he saw the madam come in, he was like, oh, no. Those ladies have spilled all of my business to this lady. And she knows intimate things about me that I don't want somebody to know. I feel like he might have maybe once been able to get in through the front door <laughs> before chickening out. Ooh, that too. Because... He strikes me as someone who, at some point or another, recently, 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 this is kind of Cyril's story, is he's finally, (laughs) like, ready to become who he wants to. Like, Mm. as soon as his boss goes away to the Imperial thing, he's like, oh, I've got a mystery to solve. I've solved it. I've, I've applied the resources. It's not just business as usual. We're doing it my way. And then he's becoming a victim of his own success. He's become really empowered by the murders Cassian did. And so now he is moving a lot faster than he's used to moving. Because anyone could look at him and be like, this guy is definitely destined to go nowhere. But... 
yeah, I think you're totally right. I think he's got a sense that he's stepping into his destiny, but it's just going so fast. It's going too fast for him. It's really is, scary. He, he is, out of all the people here, he is literally the one who knows the least about what he's doing. Oh, no. Yeah. Space Tim is like, I'm trying to fight for an okay woman. Bix is hey, like... Hey, Bix seems cool. Bix seems cool. He, Space Tim is trying to fight for someone out of his league. That's true. Yeah, she is way too cool for him. Yeah. Bix is like, I'm running a smuggling ring. Leave me alone. I will accept occasional liaisons with Space Tim. On Tuesdays. On Tuesdays. Tuesdays only. Cassian's like, ah, oh, man, I killed some guys. I gotta, gotta cover my tracks. Brassos is like, I'm gonna get ripped and put my gloves up. I'm very cool. And Marva is very angry at her son for spilling the beans, for not covering his trail, for not being a good little terrorist. So actually, because you've reminded me of Marva and the Canari plotline, mm-hmm. why don't we talk a little bit about the Canari plotline? What we find out about Canari is anecdotal and really interesting. So the guy that Cassian goes to to book a secret underground ride to Tasser as soon as he has finished selling his cool thing to Bix's buyer. For 700 credits, which is a lot. Doesn't actually seem like a lot. Let's talk about that later. So what the guy says, because he's also gotten the news bulletin about Canari. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I, I Googled it. Canari, mid-rim, abandoned after an imperial mining disaster. Everyone died. It's very toxic. And now there's an imperial prohibition on it. Mm-hmm. So I have questions. I have spoiler tape. <laughs> okay. But, like, what is going on with Canari? When we watch the D-plot of this episode, which is the kiddos going to the crashed Star Cruiser. I think that's the C-plot. Okay. Whatever, (laughs) Sam. So there's a scene almost immediately where Cassian stops in front of this massive mining infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But there's no one there. Mm -hmm. So, like, who is working this mining plant no one the imperials abandoned it oh the explosion was before so the explosion was a ship crashing that's the the explosion that cassian saw was a was the ship crashing no but the the explosion that the guy in present day on ferrix is talking about it was an explosion he said there was a mining accident a mining disaster mining disaster yeah a mining disaster could be a lot of things so Busting out the old um, dusty geophysics degree here. There's two mines, for example, uh, Sudbury and Norelsk, which are the main nickel mines in Earth. And they are actually extremely toxic to be nearby. Uh, Norelsk particularly has a dead zone of hundreds of miles around it because they're pit mining nickel and nickel's a poison. Well, okay, cool. But on Canary... There's no one working the mine. Mm -hmm. So where are they? And there's a bunch of kids without parents. (gasps) No. Are you kidding? 
all of the Canari parents were working at the mine and then there was a mining disaster? That is a viable inference, yes. Oh, no. And so the kids have been living Lord of the Flies for however long. And that much is clear from the get-go. I'm sorry, I'm processing. That's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. It kind of puts a damper on how much I loved the coziness of this episode. Because I have kind of loved watching people on Ferrix, even though they're oppressed by the Empire, they're going about their daily lives and doing their daily stuff. And I bet it felt kind of the same way on Canari until everybody died. And then when Cassian moved to Ferrix as someone who had been raised Lord of the Fly style and is now being raised on Ferrix. He doesn't want to become a cog in the machine because he's seen what happens to cogs in the Imperial machine. They die, and then the, the Empire moves on and leaves bands of kids to starve in the wilderness. Yeah, because they cleared out probably this, this pit mine. It, it actually really calls to mind some of the old map paintings that they used to do in um, the original trilogy to show a sense of scale. Mm-hmm. It looks a little bit like that, but it is a massive pit mine that is arbitrarily deep we don't see the bottom and it's probably 50 kilometers across it It is is a well-established mine it is the size of the grand canyon wow Mm -hmm. so the empire was on canary for a long time or space or there's space stuff they have massive drilling machines they could soften up the crust from orbit using a star destroyer they can do whatever they want to mine things they've got tractor beams they've got droids they've got whatever labor the canary provided Okay, but when something went wrong, this is what I'm inferring, the Empire just left. Yeah, well, listeners left to their own devices may look up the history of bankruptcies and Superfund sites and other mining things here on Earth. It's a very common thing for a mining company to all of a sudden, or an oil company, to all of a sudden have be over-leveraged in terms of how much it costs to clean up after themselves versus how much is left for them to pull out of a mine in the current economic conditions for whatever they're mining. And so then what they do is they declare bankruptcy and they take the same people and they form a new company and they get new seed capital and new golden parachutes and move right along. So, and then the taxpayers do Superfund sites. It's, yeah, except in Star Wars, there's no Superfund. So these things don't get cleaned up. I guess the kids were having so much fun on Canari that I didn't really think about why they were there all alone with no adult supervision. So the entire Canari C plot here seems to take place over an hour, like that we've seen so far. Or an afternoon. Yeah. A, and, a morning to an afternoon. And I don't know if they're having fun. All the kids are very serious. They're not laughing. They're putting on a war paint. They're they're getting together a band. They're doing things they're speaking a nonsense language they've got like something weird going on what did you think this was one of my lingering questions from last week what do you think about the choice to not subtitle the canary plot line i think that's actually critical Hmm. i think it's really important to have some mystery and also i don't think that there's anything that needed to be said on the canary plot line So much of it is 
not even really acting because young Cassian kind of just stares meanly at things. Across he, day, his, he daydreams a lot. He daydreams a lot and he's always looking at things sideways because he's got really long bangs. But <laughs> um, more importantly, it's just telling a story from a child's point of view. And in a way, having an entire colony of children be speaking a language that is unintelligible to adults is thematic in its own way. Because that's the way like groups of children do. That is a callback to Lord of the Flies as well as any other story where you have a bunch of kids doing strange things. Like they just build a weird little culture super fast. And to an outsider, it's complete nonsense because it's based off of the superstition and the rapid adaptability of children. And if you hang out in like a kindergarten or something, you know, you watch as on a field trip as kids will make the rules for a game. They'll change over the course of eight hours. And by the end of a full day, something entirely different has arisen. And then you do that for three weeks or three months or, or three years. And what has happened with the kids is something where they've developed their entire separate unique culture, which I find really interesting. Hmm. Let me think on that. Yeah. Well, keep a bookmark in the idea of the stacked levers that the empire uses, the escalation of force that the empire uses. Ooh, okay. Yeah, maybe that's my takeaway, is that when children come to investigate a star cruiser with blow darts, the empire comes back at them with blasters that kill with one shot. Mm -hmm. And then that same guy who shot her, it took like 40 blow darts for him to fall down. Yeah. So maybe it's about the relative power of mm -hmm. people against the empire. Ooh. Spicy. Very spicy. So we're going to be closing the first little bit of this arc next week. I'm really excited for that. But before we talk about that, I think it's time for Baywatch. I think it's time for Baywatch. It's time for Baywatch. So are you voting for Space Tim or not? <laughs> Space Tim will get no votes on my watch, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you got? I'm going to vote for Bix. Bix. I think Bix is a cool gal doing cool stuff. I think she's got a lot of agency. I think she set a really good boundary with her boyfriend, mm -hmm. and I really related to the way that she turned him down. When she sees the the notification come out about a canary mail on Ferrix, and she's like, I don't want to deal with this right now, and she closes it down, and Space Tim is like, hey, why don't we go out for dinner? And she has to turn him down in that way that women have to turn men down, mm -hmm. which is very nicely. And you have to give them an alternative. She's like, no, I'm actually busy tonight. Why don't we do something fun tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And it kind of seems to appease him. And that is just relatable. Mm. That is just how you have to talk to men all the time, mm -hmm. no matter what man it is. It could be the guy at the mechanic shop or it could be the guy at work or at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. That's just the way that you have to turn men down mm -hmm. so that they don't get mad at you mm -hmm. and kill you. Yeah. But I also like that she set a boundary with Space Tim and then she was like, you know what? 
I actually think I was up for hanging out Mm -hmm. with my boyfriend. And instead of sitting there and not doing anything about it, she just shows up at his house and kind of has the night that she wants to have. Yeah. That's nice. That is nice. You go Bix. Mm-hmm. I mean, a woman can run a cool smuggling empire and, you know, booty call her boyfriend in the same night. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You go Bix. Who did you pick? <laughs> I've been struggling all episode to come up with someone who not only has like enough screen time to get it from me but also who um like exemplified their own personal values Mm. and who also isn't cyril so cyril did get enough screen time he did exemplify his own personal values i'm if i do give it to him it's not for this episode it's not for this This is the worst speech ever (laughs) i could give it to the actor who did it that i mean that's it's good there but i'm gonna give it once again to cassian okay and it's because it's his show and also because he's driving the plot along and because he keeps doing his thing. When he's talking with the port authority dude who's got, you know, the exposition about Canari, Cassian's like, I have never heard of Canari. He does I, a great job. He does a great job. And he's like, oh, come on. 900 is not a reasonable number. Come on. Meet me halfway. We'll make something happen. And uh, he's doing his thing. And there's a great moment. He goes into the old Andor crashed family ship in the junkyard. And he goes, he does a bump, bump, bump on the roof. And a secret panel drops down. That's where he's been hiding the Star Path unit. And I was watching very closely in that. It's perfectly hidden. Ooh. So he is actually doing cool smuggler stuff. And he pulls out the family pistol He's like, I'm ready to go to town. I'm loaded for bear. I'm ready to solve my problems. And he tells B, he says, there's going to be some money for Marva. And that's out of all the people he owes money. He's like, I need to make sure mom gets the money. Gotta look after mom. Yeah. And it's funny because in the previous episode, Brazos says, uh, you can tell Marva can turn up the heat because- It was freezing in there. Yeah, it's freezing in there. You guys have enough money. And- I wonder if that's actually true. I think that Cassian is doing it all for love. He's doing it all. He's doing it all for fruit. And like, Aww, that's that's a worthy endeavor. You did all this for love. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. And, you know, I like, <laughs> we were going over Baywatch rankings earlier. And I'm like, man, poor Obi-Wan Kenobi got it so many times. Did not get it before episode four of his own show. <laughs> Not gonna, not gonna, not do gonna that repeat again. that no. with with Andor. Okay, fair. But I'm really excited for next week. Yeah, let's talk about next week. Okay, Sam. What are we watching next week? Next week, we're watching Andor Season 1, Episode 3, Reckoning, which is never an episode title for anything that isn't delightful in one way or the other. That is not an episode title for the faint of heart. It is not. Ooh, there's like a, there's a lot of reckonings. I mean, gosh, that's just a great word. So excited for that one. It's going to be sort of the end of this little arc. I hadn't realized until I started scoping this all out that Andor does follow some some arcs. Okay, so neat. That's what we're up to. 
Well, in the meantime, if you love Growing Up Skywalker, you can find us on all the social media platforms. Mm -hmm. We are on Instagram. We're on Threads. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter X. And this is also a great time to become one of our monthly Patreon members. We release bonus audio content once a week. And for just $3 a month, you can get access to all of our backlog of audio content and everything moving forward. You can also track me down on the FSF podcast on the second Mondays of the month. We're doing live Star Wars Saga edition, and it's uh, it's really escalating into a series of delightful mishaps. It's like a very fun live virtual D&D game, but it's Star Wars flavored, and it is delightful. Mm-hmm. So send this, that, and the other thing to your mom. Send it to your mom. I'm going to send this one to my mom. She's real excited that we're getting married. (laughs) I can hear her. (laughs) I can hear her on FaceTime across the house. She screamed. It was so cute. She screamed. And then someone in the parking lot, I heard yell, are you okay? And she goes, my daughter just got engaged. (laughs) And the other lady screamed and said, congratulations. (laughs) It was the best. Oh, that's funny. We love moms. Mm -hmm. And also send it to... uh, to the self-actualized woman who can say whatever she wants to a man whenever she wants. I will send it to myself. Bam! (laughs) And we'll talk to you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye!